0: Aloha, Covenant College. Aloha. Good. It is good to be with you in person, in our bodies, in a shared albeit distanced space. I didn't know that we were still going to be able to do this this way at this point in the semester. And I especially want you to know that my boys, Zeke and Miles, are so pleased that you have done your very best to try to follow the guidance provided by their Lego dinosaur videos. So thank you for that. I sent them a video of you all spinning around on the chapel lawn and that made them very happy. (laughs) So as Dr. Green said, I was asked to talk to you about what I learned this summer. And as soon as he said that, uh, complications ensued. Did I learn anything? Or is it all still in process? Do any of us even still remember this summer? <laughs> and, and what do you mean that I have to plan to do this without a slideshow? I'm an art historian. I can't do anything without images. But in lieu of a PowerPoint, I figured I'd do the next best thing for a visual aid. I'm going to talk about my body because that's not uncomfortable or anything. So you see, I am a biracial, Asian, white woman born and raised in Hawaii in a predominantly Asian-American context. And for much of my life, I believed that being mixed race meant that I was part of the solution to America's racial tensions. After all, I literally embodied racial reconciliation, right? Not so fast. Over the past decade or so, I've learned that my mixed identity by no means excuses me from the guilt of our country's racial sins. The events of this summer threw that reality into high relief. On May 27, 2020, I watched a video of a white woman, Amy Cooper, threatened to call police on a black man in Central Park simply because he had corrected her for not following leash laws. On May 27, 2020, I chose not to watch a video of George Floyd being choked to death by a white police officer. But my stomach sank when I saw a photograph of the impassive face of an Asian-American officer, Do Tao, standing quietly by as the horror unfolded. On May 27, 2020, I did not feel particularly proud about being a biracial white Asian woman. And yet, what I want to share with you today is this. Honestly confronting the communal sins, specifically anti-black racism, within my entwined personal histories is also what allows me to delight in my double cultural heritage more rightly. To explain this, I have three C's for us today. Confusion, confession, and confidence. Confusion, confession, And confidence. So first, confusion. In the United States, many people conceive of race like a single checkbox on a government form, right? Check one, white, black, Hispanic, Latino, Native American, or Asian, Pacific Islander. So for biracial people, this often means feeling like we have to choose one side of ourselves with which to officially identify. Now, in Hawaii, where I grew up, there are a lot of biracial and multiracial people. We even have our own terminology for this. So, we would tease my Chinese, Hawaiian, Korean, Portuguese, Filipino friends <laughs> for being, oh, you're so mixed-plate, or oh, they're chop suey. And as for me, my mom is a third-generation Japanese-American from Hawaii, and my dad is an English-Scottish-American man from Baltimore people back home would often see me and say, oh, you hapa, right? Hapa is a Hawaiian term that originally designated biracial white Hawaiian residents. And it's since grown to encompass people with any mixed Hawaiian or Asian heritage, although this usage is actually being questioned right now by native Hawaiians. But here's the thing, even having my own term, hapa, didn't mean that I actually fit in. On an island filled with people of mostly Asian and Pacific Islander descent, my too tall, too pale body, my too prominent nose bridge aligned me visually with the Haoles, the so-called foreigners, the white people who had established a legacy of colonialism that eventually led to the decimation of the native population through disease, the importation of Asian labor, and the overthrow of the sovereign Hawaiian state. I constantly had to pass what sociologists call race tests for inclusion. So since I didn't look Japanese enough, I had to prove my belonging in other ways. Like, I could speak pidgin, I studied Japanese, I knew more about my Japanese cultural heritage than many of my mixed Asian friends did. But then, every once in a while, while visiting my dad's relatives on the East Coast, my auntie would teach me how to do the Scottish sword dance and I'd have tea in English teacups with my grandmother. When I attended Covenant as an undergrad, I wondered if my body would fit in here on the mainland. Spoiler alert, it did not. My body has been treated like a puzzle to solve or a rare orchid to admire. So beautiful, a woman mused contemplatively while staring at me. You know, someday everyone is gonna look like you all bloods mixed together in racial harmony, that's what heaven's going to look like. And While that might sound a little weird when I say it to you here out of context, this lady is not alone in thinking this. As recently as 2013, National Geographic magazine featured a cover story on mixed-race people that heralded the coming of a post-racial America, a time when racial categories and thus racism disappear altogether. Biracial people like me were celebrated as forerunners, individual proofs of racial animus being overcome relationship by relationship. And you know what, this shows up not infrequently in church contexts too, where interracial marriages often form the core of multi-ethnic churches and are held up as a glimpse of heaven to come. I'm not going to lie, if you can't really fit in anywhere, if none of the checkboxes can contain you, then it is kind of nice for someone to tell you that you're the future of society, you know? <laughs> and for a while, especially when I was an undergrad like you, I was in favor of a purely celebratory form of cross cultural engagement. I would never have admitted this out loud, but it was almost like if I could convince someone else how awesome Japanese culture was, then they could overcome any lingering prejudice towards Asian Americans, and we could be one step closer to interracial harmony. Just let me let the record show that this is not how I convinced my white husband to marry me, okay? So yes, being biracial in America can be confusing, Being white-Asian-biracial in the American South, where racial categories are almost always presented in terms of black and white, is even more confusing. And being white-Asian-biracial in the midst of a broadening cultural call for white people to acknowledge their complicity in racial systems is, yeah, extremely confusing. Like, do I renounce half of myself? Turns out, the answer is no. And while I had been growing into this answer for years, the events of this summer helped me clarify the only way to faithfully live as an embodied woman with inextricably entangled ethnic identities is to embrace the practice of confession. So that's point number two, confession. A confession is an acknowledgement. We use the same word to describe what we do with our sin and how we declare our beliefs. Right, like the Westminster Confession. In American evangelical circles, confession is frequently reduced to a personal act. We confess our personal sins directly and usually silently to God. But while personal confession is hugely important and it reinforces the priestly a- access that we have to God through Jesus, the Bible also requires other forms of confession. So another form of confession that the Bible models for us is confession of corporate sin. We do this because we know that the fall has bent every aspect of human life, including the systems that we've made. We do this because it acknowledges our oneness with brothers and sisters in Christ who do have direct guilt. And we do this because as God makes clear in Leviticus 26 and Jeremiah 14 that we do bear the burdens of the sins of our forefathers. The importance of confessing corporate sin is particularly heavy when it comes to the sin of racism in the United States. This is not because racism is any worse than other sins, but because personal bias and malice has, over time, metastasized into systems and structures that benefit some while putting others at peril. So let's go back to May 27 of this year. When I saw that video of Amy Cooper weaponizing a 911 call against a black man, I was reminded of a long, long history of white women leveraging unjust systems in their favor. I thought of the seemingly mundane acts, thousands of them, by white mothers who sought to maintain white supremacy in their neighborhoods and children's schools by insisting that success and decorum must look a certain way. I remembered Elizabeth K.D. Stanton and others who sacrificed black women's suffrage in order to make their own enfranchisement more expedient. White suffragettes believed that women's voting rights would be more easily accepted by white men if they only applied to white women. And I recall Carolyn Bryant Donham, who accused Emmett Till of grabbing her and making sexually crude remarks. Her claims were cited as absolution for the white men who brutally abducted, tortured and killed the 14-year-old black boy before dumping his body into the Tallahatchie River. The men were all acquitted of Till's murder in part because they were seen as defending the honor of a white woman. Donham was just one of hundreds of white women who ended up at the center of lynchings of black men. But in 2017, she admitted that she had lied about the encounter. These women are my mothers. Oh God, both I and my mothers have sinned. We have done wickedness. Save us, O oh Lord our God, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. On May 27, I also saw that photograph of the Asian American police officer who stood by and did nothing as his partner crushed the life out of a black man. And that day, I meditated on the long history of ignorance, mistrust, denigration, and violence that has been perpetuated against blacks by Asian Americans. We have consistently confused success with assimilation to dominant culture. I recalled the silence from my Asian American community regarding black history and current injustices experienced by black people in America. Our silence was cultural, I thought. Asian people just don't make a stink. We keep a stiff upper lip. But our silence was a shield that only covered ourselves. We wanted the privileges that came with being considered white in America. I was reminded of Japanese immigrant Takao Ozawa, who in 1923 petitioned for naturalization in the United States by claiming that he should be considered a free white person. His request was denied by the Supreme Court, but a few months later it was followed by another case brought by Bhagat Singh Thind, an Indian Sikh immigrant and World War I veteran for the United States. Thind also argued that he should be considered white, But his claim was in part that he was obviously superior to the lower races of people of African descent. His case also failed, but both lawsuits demonstrated Asian Americans desire for what we might call proximate whiteness. I also mourned over Soon Ja-Doo, the Korean American convenience store owner in Los Angeles who shot and killed 15 year old Latasha Harlins in 1991. Dew saw Harlins' black body as criminal and a threat, and so she took the girl's life over a bottle of orange juice that she assumed was going to be stolen. Dew's mistrust of black people had dire consequences not only for Harlins, but for the entire city of Los Angeles. These people are my fathers and my mothers. I and my Asian-American fathers and mothers have sinned. We have done wickedness. Save us, O Lord our God, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. When I believed that my biracial body was an emblem of racial peace, I would have resisted hearing, much less telling these stories. I wanted a purely celebratory model of diversity, one that dispensed with black-white binaries in favor of joyfully highlighting a beautiful array of colors and cultures. Past wrongs should be forgotten so that we can move forward toward unity. But as I confess these sins to you here today, I'm not doing so in futile self-flagellation. It's not because I hate my whiteness or my Asianness. ness It is precisely because I want to be grateful for the body and the histories that God has given to me that I am recounting these failings to you right now. You see, confession allows me to see God's grace for the miraculous work that it is. Confession opens up the possibility of confidence in grace. Confidence in our ethnic identity leads to ethnic idolatry. Right? Competence without confession leads to ethnic idolatry. If I only focus on how amazing Japanese food is, and it is, how great our hair is, also is, and how persevering my Japanese immigrant great-grandparents were, I'm not actually celebrating my japanese I'm crafting a fragile facade of perfection that will at some point or another crumble. But when I acknowledge our collective sins, I can marvel that God has not utterly abandoned us over to them, right? And let me be clear here I'm not just talking about sins of anti black racism. I'm talking about the way that shame drives us, that we've desired goodness instead of holiness, that our care for the collective has only extended to those who look like us. He could have given us over to that, and yet he's allowed us to cultivate serene gardens, design beautiful textiles, and develop a cultural ethic of hard work. Confessing the brokenness allows me to stand confidently In grace. It frees me. Friends, let me be really clear here. I'm not making this up as some kind of woke Christian ritual. Look at the model provided to us by the people of Israel in Psalm 106. And I know some of you have already heard me talk about this in class, but it's really important, so bear with me. Psalm 106 begins with praise to the Lord for His goodness and steadfast love. Then the psalmist declares, blessed are they who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. So you might expect that the rest of the psalm will be a description of a righteous man, like we see in Psalm 1, or, or maybe a description of a righteous nation. But instead, the psalmist switches to an individual plea. Remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. And then, like a camera zooming back out, he continues, both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. And this is unexpected because the psalmist just said that the righteous, uh, that those who do righteousness at all times are the ones who are blessed. And he's asked God to remember him as if he is one of those blessed ones. But now he's announcing collective guilt and he spends verse after verse after verse detailing the many ways his fathers have sinned and how their sins have formed a pattern of rebelliousness and destruction. He does this for 36 verses and the robustness of his confession put my earlier ones to shame. Go read it. We can notice, too, that this confession is not a burden to the psalmist. He's not weighed down by guilt and shame precisely because confession is unloading the heaviness to God. Nor does he try to distance himself from his ancestors. He acknowledges his unity to them. He acknowledges the rippling effects of their sin. He recounts God's judgment against them as righteous and fair. He does not excuse them as people of their own time. He does not excuse them as people who had good intentions. The psalmist enters into confidence because of this confession. Here's verse 44 and 45. Nevertheless, he, meaning God, looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. And then, this is crazy, the psalmist is so certain that God has received his confession that he makes a radical request. He's just said all of these bad things that they've done, right? And then he says, Save us, O Lord our God, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise even after he's listed all of those awful sins, he still expects our good, good God to hear, to save, and to desire praise from such people. Isn't that incredible? Now remember, this psalm would have been used in regular corporate worship. This isn't a one-time confession, it's a liturgy, it's a repeated practice the Israelites can confidently relish in God's favor because they understand themselves in light of their shortcomings and in need of grace. So here's a hard thing. Most ethnic minorities in the United States have absorbed decades and even centuries of being told how unworthy of celebration, how unworthy of confidence our cultures are. Being told to confess right now can feel like a step backwards. On the flip side, most Americans who identify as white have absorbed decades and even centuries of being told that dominant American culture is fundamentally praiseworthy. The criticism we face now can feel utterly destabilizing and even vicious, kind of mean. No part of biracial me is culturally adept at this kind of confession-driven confidence. We need the Holy Spirit to transform us, not out of our cultures but within them, enabling us to do something so markedly different from anything that the world can imagine. As this summer showed us, there is so much at stake when it comes to grappling honestly with our pasts. I saw my histories working themselves out and Amy Cooper and Tao this summer. It is likely that they did not even know how they fit into these long, shameful narratives. If we refuse to acknowledge the cracks in our histories, we will be forced to reckon with them in the present. History doesn't simply repeat itself. History runs along the courses that we have carved. Like water seeking the easiest path, it finds the fissures then cuts a furrow if we ignore the fractures they deepen and expand until they form formidable canyons when martin luther king jr quoted the prophet amos and asked for justice to roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream he was calling for a love driven justice so powerful that it could fundamentally reshape the land itself. Can you envision that? Water, justice, so powerful that it could change the course of canyons. You must understand, of course, that I can only live rightly as a biracial white Asian woman when I do so through my identity in Christ. Being mixed race in America can be confusing, but Jesus enables me to confess and then to act with confidence from the particularities of my double heritage. My biracial body is not the answer to America's racial problems, but my experience in this body, particularly this summer, has been a God-given gift. May we all embrace a liturgy of confession and to commit to carving new paths for the water to flow. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for hearing our confession. Thank you for inviting our confession. Would you give us the boldness that we need to do such a radical act? Would you allow us through your spirit to see this as an unburdening rather than a weight that we must carry? Would you usher us in to confidence in your grace? We are tired right now and we might think that we have to wait until we are strong enough to do the research, to bring our confession before you. But Father, we're thinking about this backwards. This is not something we need to work up to. This is something that actually ushers us in to rest. And we need rest right now. Perhaps, Father, we need, not perhaps, we definitely need your spirit to give us rest through confession. As we go forward in the rest of this day, would you give us confidence in your grace? Let us know that the work we are doing is not in vain. In your son's name we pray. Amen.